0: the weekly review with roman today it's friday december 18th we are broadcasting live oh it's 2020 uh, in case you're listening to this in the future or in the past or if you have special technologies where you can time travel and you decide to spend your time listening to this little show here uh december 18th 2020 thanks so much for tuning in we're broadcasting live from mutiny radio we are in san francisco and we are on unceded ramitush ohlone land and for more information, please go to weeklyrev.org and click on our land acknowledgement tab. And there you will find a lot of links, including maps, mutual aid funds, uh, land tax, and a lot more information. Uh, Native news outlets that you can uh, find more information to be in solidarity with Indigenous communities. So again, please go to weeklyrev.org forward slash land acknowledgement. Or if you just go to the weekly rev page, you can uh, find it there as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got music and news for you, as per usual, on this show. Wow, a lot's been going on, and we'll get to what we can in the next hour, 45 minutes or so. Start off with some music, as we always do, and if you got here a little bit early, which is pretty awesome uh, <laughs> and rare, so the first part of the song that you may have heard if you started loop Listening in at noon was Juliana Hatfield's cover of Physical uh, by Olivia Newton-John. like that cover a lot. Then a band called Big Thief with Not, And then Toots and the Maytals with Pressure Drop. And sadly, Toots Hibbert uh, passed away this year in September. So wanted to play a song from Toots and the Maytals. And th- they also released an album this year that we'll be playing a track from later on in the program. We do have some news and articles to share The door is open just so we can get some more air in here. And I think back to when the pandemic first started here in March and we're wiping down all the surfaces. And by we, I mean, I I was really into it. I I mean, it was pretty intense and I guess better safe than sorry. And now it's more just trying to keep the airflow going on to keep this place as safe as possible for all who enter. Sometimes I start off the show with a rant. I don't know what else to say besides that... uh, Wow, both parties are really letting people die. That's a shock. Glad I'm sitting down. Things have changed a lot in the last uh, seven years that I've been doing this show. Anyway, uh, we do, uh, not to, if you're listening for the first time, thanks. And it's not always a downer because we do provide articles about folks coming together to help each other. And that's what can be done since most people in positions of power don't give a shit. And I'm not being bitter or i particularly pessimistic. This is just something that's always been the case for the most part. So uh, let's get to it. And then I'm sure I'll rant later about... I'm not... I no longer receive the email notifications for Next Door when people nearby uh, post racist classes shit. So I'm... And I, rec- I appreciate the folks who go in there and argue with those folks and uh, call them out. And I really appreciate that. And that's something that I c- could not do uh, at the moment. So... Um, perhaps I'm a little bit less stressed out not having that be uh, in my inbox just to see uh, so-called neighbors being awful to other humans. <sighs> okay, let's get to it. This first article is uh, from Yes Magazine. It's not about the band Yes, uh, which is good. I mean, I got I got no strong feel- I, I'm not really a fan of the band Yes, I guess. I don't have any strong feelings one way or the other. However, trying to be funny here because the show is uh, about serious stuff happening, so let's make jokes about 70s rock bands. Uh, sadly, I could actually do that, and uh, let's well, let's not today. This is an article called "How Portland Protesters Keep Each Other Safe," and you can find it at yesmagazine.org. And it was written by Isabella Garcia, and it came out on December 9th of this year. And the quote at the top, along with its accompanying a beautiful photo of a medic, and The quote is protesting ultimately isn't safe and we're not trying to say that it is, says one Portland street medic, but that doesn't mean we can't take care of each other. And as fascism continues to rise and both we see from these proud boys and the right-wing groups coming around, assaulting people coming from town to town, talk about outside agitators and then also police who also tend to assault protesters. uh, It's important for folks to keep each other safe. Portlanders have been leading protests against racism and police brutality for more than five months after the death of George Floyd. Organizing months of ongoing direct action is one challenge, but keeping each other safe physically and mentally is another. And there's a note here. This article is the second in a three-part series exploring the anatomy of Portland's ongoing protest movement. And they also provide links to part one and part three. And on our website, weeklyrev.org, at the end of the day, I will have up links to these articles so you can find them there and as well share them with your friends and networks and families and coworkers and whomever you share articles with staying safe in the streets assembled outside of the immigration and customs enforcement boo bleh. I would spit if I was going to spit in the studio but I'm uh metaphorically I'm f- psychically mentally I'm spitting on ICE and everyone who works for ICE and I hope you can join me in this it'll be a group mental abolish ICE Mentally, for what I can do at the moment, measure to destroy ice. Okay. And again, not the physical ice that we need in the world. Okay. Assembled outside of ice building in Portland's South Waterfront, the August 20th demonstration organized by Safe PDX protest was met by federal and local law enforcement, which shot impact munitions and CS gas, a type of tear gas, at the protesters. While many people on the front of the protesting lines carried shields made by a group of volunteers using 55-gallon barrels, pool noodles, and duct tape, and were able to avoid serious injury that night, the show of force from the police often causes injuries." It's difficult to determine an accurate scope of the injuries sustained over five months of protests, but there are documented instances of a broken wrist, sprained ankles, temporary loss of vision from tear gas or pepper spray, and an extreme case of a skull fracture when a protester was shot in the head with a munition by a U.S. marshal. When a protester is injured, resting on the sidewalk or taking a breather against a building isn't an option while police are actively trying to clear the area, often with munitions, gas, and physical force. In those moments, street medics are needed. And they provide a photo of cops arresting a medic. Because that's what fucking cops do. They arrest people who help people. Wow. Ugh. I'm making myself angry just thinking about the world as it is. Okay. The street medic community in Portland is a sprawling network, but Portland Action Medics is a long-standing street medic group providing emergency medical care at protests since 2017. PAM is a loose network of street medics who have received at least 20 hours of training on protest-specific street medicine. According to PAM organizer Jesse Sparkles, that's a fun name, uh, the group has 160 active street medics, about 50 of whom serve the protest weekly. Sparkles estimates that 25% of PAM medics are frontline healthcare workers. The Portland Action Medics started gearing up this year in mid-March when COVID-19 hit. The group is always prepared to restock medic kits or assist with a pop-up event, so they had large storage tubs full of gloves and first aid supplies. They provide a... Uh, Photo of a table that has a lot of uh, first aid and PPE on it, and then another photo is a medic pouring liquid over a protester's face, um, assuming that the, assuming that the protester was hit with uh, gas or pepper spray. Well, shit, it's not doing any good in my attic, Sparkles recalls, thinking when the pandemic began, so he distributed the supplies to medics who started serving homeless encampments, passing out masks and gloves. Then, Pam organizers made bulk orders for isopropyl alcohol and started making homemade hand sanitizer. Sparkles estimates that Pam made more than 500 gallons of sanitizer. The medics also collaborated with mutual aid groups, harm reduction groups, and nonprofits to distribute supplies into broader networks. When the protests started, the group just shifted into a new gear asking themselves what protesters needed to protest safely during a pandemic. Protesting ultimately isn't safe, and we're not trying to say that it is, Sparkle says, but that doesn't mean we can't take care of each other. Street medics started taking out rolling carts full of first aid, hand sanitizer, and masks to the protests. When the demonstrators started being tear gassed in the early morning hours, Pam added respirators, tear gas wipes, eye flush solution, and energy drinks to their carts. All of the supplies are distributed out of the PAM lab. And they have a photo here of Rose Hip Medic Collective and Portland Action Medics. And the caption is inside the Portland Action Medics warehouse in Portland, Oregon. And the photo is by Paul Dunn for Yes Magazine. The lab looks like an ad hoc warehouse with a dozen or so tables covered with medical supplies. Against a wall are buckets of supplies where street medics reload their portable wagons before heading out to protest. Uh, masks, hand sanitizer, first aid basics, energy drinks, and tear gas wipes. A whiteboard catalogs the group's inventory. As of mid August, they had made 8,959 tear gas wipes since the start of the protests. And they provide more photos here, also by Paul Dunn. And the caption is At the PM, PAM warehouse in Portland, first aid supplies stand organized and ready for street medics to load up carts to take to. Organizing protests against racial uh, against racial injustice and police brutality. After the first month of protests, nightly actions moved away from the Mo Moama County. Justice Center, home to the Portland Police Bureau's central precinct and a county jail, and the federal courthouse in downtown Portland, to various police precincts in residential areas. PAM has started posting flyers in neighborhoods that are at risk of being tear gassed during the demonstrations, informing people what to do if tear gas seeps into their home. The flyers list the potential impacts of tear gas, how to seal doors and windows to limit your exposure, and how to remove tear gas from your hair, skin, and clothes if you're exposed. Volunteers staple the flyers onto telephone poles and go door-to-door, providing small bags with medical masks, earplugs, and tear gas wipes. And they have another photo here of eye flush solution and chemical weapons wipes, because that's, again, (laughs) that's the land of the free, right? Um, If you're going to show up in someone's life, give something, Sparkles advised, noting that now is a powerful time to build community connections because of the amount of need. Being nimble and ready to change is what makes Pam effective, Sparkles explains. That flexibility means acknowledging changing conditions, quickly asking what the group has the ability to provide, and scaling that up as fast as possible. It's been an evolving thing. Next week, we might be doing something completely different, honestly, Sparkles says. Beyond the street medics, several mutual aid groups supply protesters with gear and fuel each night. The witches are a local coven of people from different faiths, including Wicca, Santeria, native beliefs, and neo-paganism, who provide mutual aid during the protests, among other things. The coven was moved to action after watching the viral video of George Floyd's death and attended the first protest as a group. From there, the coven started recognizing needs and doing their best to fill them. According to Coven member R, the witches started bringing snacks and basic supplies like masks and water to the protests. As the demonstrations lasted later into the night, they started bringing full meals like pizzas and burritos, as well as energy drinks and portable food for protesters to take for later. Once the tear gas started, the witches basically bought bought out organ of respirators, R says, in addition to providing knee pads and umbrellas, which protesters used to deflect munitions like a shield. When Oregon experienced historic wildfires in September, the witches mobilized their mutual aid to counties that were most impacted by the flames, distributing medical supplies and organizing donation drives for evacuees and firefighters. As protests have continued for more than five months, the witches are trying to address the trauma and mental health impacts protesters are experiencing by providing self-care bags for protesters who are being released from jail, usually after being arrested for interfering with a peace officer. Each care bag from the witches has a candle, lotion, bath salts, and a piece of chocolate. Pretty soon, I looked around, and it's a much larger operation in coven than I thought possible, Art says. We were working with another mutual aid group, and another one, and another one. And now, I would say we're basically part of this mutual aid and never-ending game of phone tag, where we are all talking to each other and communicating the needs of the community and trying to be there for each other. Another member of that mutual aid phone tag is Team Raccoon, a group of volunteers who bring trash grabbers to protests to te- to clean up cigarette butts and spent munitions. Morgan McNiff, the organizer and public face of Team Raccoon, started the group by leading Saturday morning cleanups in Lonsdale Square, the center of the two of, of the initial two block protest zone in downtown Portland. The first cleanup was on July 5th and aimed to give people who didn't want to or couldn't participate in nighttime protests a way to support the movement. There were about 20 regular volunteers. And they have a photo and the caption here is, uh, Morgan McNiff of Portland's Team Raccoon displays a trash grabber they use to clean up protest sites. Photo by Paul Dunn for Yes Magazine. A lot of people would show up because they want to help and they can't participate in direct action, they explain. It's really sad because these last two weeks we've experienced so much alt-right violence at at the park clean location that I don't think we can in good conscience hold a park clean anymore. So I'm trying to figure out a way to have those people participate as well. McNiff now focuses on cleaning during nightly actions with three to five other volunteers and running a respirator filter exchange program. The Respirator Exchange is funded by a $5,000 donation from Riot Ribs, a group that served free food to protesters before dissolving and redistributing the community donations they received after internal conflict. McNiff collects spent filters, filters that have accumulated too many particles from CS gas to continue filtering air effectively from protesters who provide the dates the filters were used and any symptoms they have experienced, and gives them to a team of researchers who catalog the chemicals and the chemical degradation over time. Little is known about the impact of inhaling CS gas over an extended period of time, but there has been a pattern of protesters having irregular, irregular, excuse me, irregular menstrual cycles after being exposed to the gas, and they provide a link to that article. The danger of the chemical munitions being used once is real, but the impact of long-term exposure is completely unknown, McNiff says. Nobody was intended to be using these things for 90 days every day. On September 10th, after 105 days of tear gas being used semi-regularly to disperse crowds of protesters, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, boo, bleh, uh, who also acts as the city's police commissioner, ordered police to stop using CS gas. The Portland police have abided by the ban, but the federal officers who often work in tandem with local police to disperse protesters are not affected by the ban and continue to use CS gas. There are also groups like PDX Disabled Comrade Collective that work to make nightly actions more accessible for disabled protesters by promoting education materials and connecting disabled protesters with protest buddies. There is a space for protesting for anybody. Sylvan, one of the group organizers says, it might look different sometimes and we might need accessibility and inclusion to help us make it happen. But so many disabled activists are passionate about all of this and they wanna be a part of it too. One of the group's major successes was connecting a visually impaired journalist with a sighted guide so she could record audio of the protests. Shark, another group organizer, said that so many protesters were offering to be sighted guides that the journalist was able to extend the opportunity to a larger visually impaired community in Portland. I don't see how you can claim the First Amendment right is a right if it's not fairly applied throughout an entire population. Then it's a privilege to be able to protest which is the opposite of a right, Shark argues. Wow, that's an extremely informative article. Again, it was written by Isabella Garcia, and uh, Isabella's bio says, Isabella Garcia is the solutions reporter for Yes Media. Her work has appeared in the Malher Enterprise and Yes Magazine. Isabella is based in Portland. She can be reached at IsabellaGarcia.website. And Isabella's also on Twitter. So again, you can find this article at YesMagazine.org, and we will be sharing a link on our website, weeklyrev.org. Cool. I'm going to rest my mouth a bit. <laughs> that sounded weird. And take a bit of a break. I'm going to be playing some music. I haven't heard it yet, so uh, hopefully it's awesome. And this was from a, there was a video of Marky Ramone calling out uh, John Lydon. And in this video, it was like, it was like a punk Uh panel discussion and john line was just going off and being a fucking asshole and they also aside from this they also talked to henry rollins and he recommended some of these bands so i thought we'd play a few of them this first is from a band called high tension and the song is called bully this just yet. So let's check out the next band called Cable Ties. This song is called Sandcastles. I really like that Sandcastle song. That's pretty good. That will most likely make the rotation to be played another time here on the show. Let's get back to uh, a news article of sorts. And this is from Rafa. Rank and file action. rafa-uc.com. Who are we? Let's read. Rank-and-file action is a labor caucus of academic student workers in the University of California. It emerged in the wake of the UC-wide struggle for a cost-of-living adjustment, also known as COLA, and as part of the resurgence of rank-and-file unionism across the U.S. labor movement, especially in the education sector. In rank-and-file unionism, organizing and struggles are led by members who do not hold staff or officer positions. We get together and collectively determine what we need and what we need to do to get it. Rafa wants to shift the balance of power within the UC in favor of the academic workers that make the university run. We will only make gains when we take risks together to achieve a goal. This is easier said than done. We believe that underneath every powerful collective of workers are deep relationships of trust built over time and through the confidence that comes with taking concrete action against the boss." Organizing projects are expressions of the self-organization and self-interest of workers. We're looking for academic student workers who are ready to advance and shape these projects and to kickstart new ones. If you're ready to build power to fight for yourself and workers around you, let's talk. The power of unionized workers will come from the rank and file or not at all. And they provide a uh, link to contact them. So again, you can find this information at rafa-uc.com and getting back to the initial article I was going to share it's um, an analysis of cola wins statewide and this was published on December 13th 2020 and its title is when we fight we win and the photo at the top of the article has photos of tents and there's a sign outside the first tent that says rent burdened You can also download this article or download a flyer, the PDF of the post as well on the website, and we will be providing a link on weeklyrev.org. It's a long article, and uh, I'll start by reading it, and I might uh, jump around, uh, not like the song, but I might jump towards the end of the article at some point, as it is quite a bit long. Uh, We'll see. First paragraph. Student workers across the University of California are currently engaged in rank and file organizing in response to a slew of crises. On top of pre-existing campaigns concerning a whole host of pressing issues, we are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, demanding the defunding of UC police departments and combating austerity measures already affecting UC workers. While the convergence of the pandemic, police violence, and budget cuts was unforeseeable at the outset of the COLA strikes at UC Santa Cruz just one year ago, we also discovered the strategic positions we occupy and the tools we possess in the course of the labor actions that followed in the 2019-2020 academic year. To understand our current situation and to grow our power, it is crucial that we take stock of what we won last year. There have already been several insightful analyses <laughs> Analyses of the strengths and weaknesses of the cola movement that have been provided that have provided occasion for self-reflection and critique but we have yet to undertake a more systematic survey of the positive material outcomes of last year's struggle see this can be a positive show The following is an appraisal of the concessions that organized militant student workers extracted from UC administration at departmental, campus, and statewide levels during the COLA labor actions. It is also an evaluation of the level of organization that made these wins possible. We seek to answer the following questions. Where did we win the most and why? What did it take to win? And crucially, given our current situation, how do we win again? And there's a quote here. The lesson that our gains over the last year can teach us is this. When we fight, we win. The demand for a cost of living adjustment and the wildcat strike activities that militated for it resulted in a host of material gains for student workers across the UC system. These include new summer stipends, housing stipends, departmental top-ups of TA salaries, and other benefits and raises. Our boss has not, of course, conceded that these changes to the terms of our employment are responses to the Kohler movement. Admitting this would further exacerbate their present legal issues with respect to the unfair labor practice charges filed by our union. U-A-W... (laughs) That's an interesting name for a a union. I'm just kidding. Uh, U-A-W... (laughs) 2865. The result dealing that con- constituted the unfair labor practice must be understood as the efforts of a panicked boss to defuse a labor action beginning to sweep the state. Because many of our gains from this past year are the product of administration's attempts to buy off strike support, the gains we have made this year, while calls for celebration are a double edged sword. Uneven gains across our unit can deepen pre-existing inequalities or create new ones, and producing such inequalities among union members is a tried-and-true union-busting tool. Further, any public concession to the COLA movement would also admit the seriousness of a threat to the un- to university operations that organized graduate student workers posed at various mov- moments over the last year. Because of all these conditions, in order to account for the wins of the COLA movement, we have had to make our own independent inquiries at individual, departmental, campus, and statewide levels. Given the uneven strength of the COLA movement across various departments and campuses, our initial findings are not surprising. We won significant wage increases for student workers where we had the most intense levels of rank-and-file organizing and militancy. In other words, that our gains are over the last year can teach us is this. When we fight, we win. The labor actions of the 2019-2020 academic year were the largest mobilizations of graduate student workers across the UC since the 2009-2011 uprisings to oppose austerity. In December 2019, a militant movement led by rank-and-file graduate graduate student workers at UCSC for a cost-of-living adjustment, COLA, quickly spread to campuses across the state. Graduate student workers across the UC system recognize their own predicament in the simple demand that we should be paid enough to live where we work. The call for a raise to alleviate the financial strain produced between stagnating UC wages and California's exorbitant housing market caught on more quickly than anyone could have anticipated. After some weeks of the UCSC Wildcat strike, the movement spread to other campuses where workers coordinated walkouts and sickouts and went on teaching and grading strikes at Berkeley, Davis, Santa Barbara, and San Diego. In so doing, and in ways that have so far been somewhat opaque <laughs> opaque and unappreci- under opaque and underappreciated, Our collective movement won substantial economic gains and built significant organizational power for rank-and-file union members. The winds of the COLA movement. While the UC administration will never admit to considering to the demands of the Wildcat strike, we won wage increases and other benefits on nearly every, if not every, campus that participated in labor actions of some kind. The power of the mass coordinated labor action that we organized becomes particularly evident when we compare these gains to the concessions secured from the university during collective bargaining in 2018 where no rank and file organizing materialized in the crucial summer months when the contract was settled so in santa cruz um there is some wins five-year funding guarantee for terminal degrees campus-wide $2,500 annual housing stipend, later limited to students in years one through six, TA raises to to parity with GSR wages and enhanced first-year funding packages in computer science and engineering department, monthly pay increases in the Baskin School of Engineering, dissertation quarter fellowship increased to $8,000 in the history department, increase in fellowship amounts from local funding agencies like the Humanities Institute and the Cota Robles Fellowships. Let me make sure I'm reading that correctly. Yes, Coda Robles Fellowship. Okay. And next Berkeley, UC Berkeley. $5,000 summer fellowships and raises to $25,000 a year in comparative literature. One time $3,500 payments in Near Eastern Studies, raises to $30,000 a year in the Rhetoric Department, raises to $2,800 a year in Spanish and Portuguese Department, and raises to $40,000 a year in Physics. At UC Davis, there was a $200 a month raise for English graduates gra- uh, teaching standalone college writing courses. At UC Irvine, there was a campus wide $5,000 summer funding guarantee for terminal degrees. In UCLA, There was a $6,000 summer funding in sociology, UC San Diego, additional summer funding in literature and ethnic studies departments, and two payments of bonus funding in cognitive science department. At UC Santa Barbara, there was a one-time payment of $400 to every graduate student in the linguistics department and some campus-level housing response, that's in quotation marks, uh, payments of $500. It is clear that many departments across the state quietly boosted student worker re remuneration around the time that strike activities began on their respective campuses, perhaps in recognition of the le- legitimacy of graduate student need, or perhaps to head off labor actions from spreading to their own students. This may have been the case in the physics department at Berkeley, where a salary raise of $40,000 a year was announced as strike activities intensified on campus, even though grads in this department had not declared themselves strike-ready. A lesson here, to which we will return shortly, is that we should never discount the generalized pressure that militant rank-and-file organizing places on administrators who are likely to capitulate where and when they can with with the least damage done, with the least damage to their positions and profits. In any case, directly or indirectly, labor actions statewide won material gains for graduate students in diverse arms of the UC. But these gains are not assured. This is evidenced by the $7,500 summer funding package that was announced by UCLA's chancellor, only to be rescinded some weeks later when the strike threat waned and budget cuts loomed with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Although some departments granted summer funding to their own students, as in sociology, this funding can also be cut at any time. And without further organization to secure all of these wins in our collective bargaining agreement, we can and should expect clawbacks Uh, like those at UCLA. Indeed, on November 23rd, 2020, the Graduate Division of UC Santa Cruz revoked the previous extension of the annual housing stipend to students through year seven, now limiting the stipend to students only within years one through six. The change of the terms of the housing stipend was not formally announced, nor was any explanation given other than that the state budgets had precipitated budget cuts. In sum, unilateral guarantees from the university can be revoked just as abruptly and covertly as they are granted. There's a bit more here. I'm going to take a music break and um, let's see here. Here's one more song from the Cable Ties called The Producer. We'll listen to it, see how this sounds, and then we'll be back in a bit. few songs were by a band called Cable Ties. I like them. Let's get back to this article we're reading. For joining us, thanks for tuning in. If you're to listen to Mutiny Radio. Please feel free to donate to Mutiny Radio. We have a Venmo up. If Go to MutinyRadio.fm We also have a Patreon set up for this show. Anything you give would be greatly appreciated. Anywhere from a dollar a month would help to help keep this show going. You can find more information at WeeklyRev We've uploaded a new Patreon video as well with providing more information. So again, anywhere from a dollar a month and up to help keep the show going would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Okay. Next up. Continuing in the article, I should say. In the last weeks and months, we have witnessed the implementation of austerity measures across the university. Buffeting the meager protections of unionized and non-unionized workers such as UC AFT lecturers. We might even speculate that such cuts have not yet been made to graduate student workers because of our recent organizing. However, we should be prepared for UC administration to continue to train its watchful eye on our level of militancy and coordination in the coming months. Unless we are prepared to organize against further assaults on our rights and protections, we should expect them to take aim at graduate student workers as well. The unevenness and insecurity of these concessions can be accounted for in part by varying levels of organization across departments and campuses. Further, there are almost certainly more wins of which we are not aware, an issue which can also attribute to a relative lack of coordination on certain campuses and in particular departments and divisions. These campuses are in particular Riverside, Merced, and Davis, as well as Los Angeles and Irvine to a lesser degree. The departments are often, but not always, in the STEM fields, indicating both existing resource inequality and the priorities of administrative counterinsurgency. And I recommend listening to the episode I did of the show with Dylan Rodriguez, who is at UC Riverside. And we talked about the amount of repression from the UC system and other colleges in general against student protesters. So please do check that out. You can also find a link on our webpage as well. Clearly, these are places where we must build power through rank-and-file organizing if our next labor actions are to be as powerful and effective as possible. Two further trends seem likely given the distribution of the COLA wins outlined above. One is perhaps an obvious and hopeful one, that in departments and on campuses with relatively high levels of organization, workers were more likely to win concessions from the university. This organization often looked like relatively large proportions of workers engaging in labor actions. Importantly, though, such participation was also frequently more modest. Robust de- departmental, divisional, and campus level communications, infrastructures, and worker relationships, the building blocks for a mass labor action, were often good indicators of capacity for successful struggle. The second unmistakable factor in the distribution of wins is, however, the budgets of individual departments and campuses and their willingness to expand expend them to quell worker dissatisfaction. For example, extremely limited organization was achieved in the Baskin School of Engineering or amongst fellows of specific funding agencies, but these were nonetheless the sites of some of the most significant funding increases at Santa Cruz. Likewise, for cognitive science at San Diego and physics at Berkeley, it is possible that similar wage and funding increases were implemented in STEM departments across the state, but without relationships with workers in these departments, we do not yet know. Both of these conclusions point to some key takeaways for our ongoing work of building student worker power this year. First, in order to make material gains in departments already struggling with limited student funding, robust organizational networks that foster rank-and-file militancy are absolutely necessary. Second, while there, is significantly, while there is significant organizing within STEM departments on some campuses, there is a strong need for further work in these areas statewide. Finally, we must understand that in addition to the material gains of the past year, we also made crucial organizational gains. We built substantial organizational networks and tools that have served as the foundation for our continued struggle. Individual departments have already seen increased success in organizing around other issues in the departments since the COLA movement, and these departmental organizing structures are increasingly being integrated into statewide structures. Statewide, workers are involved in diverse committees tackling a range of labor issues, and each is drawing both incoming and senior graduate student workers into the struggle. In other words, student workers in many corners of the university have been united through struggle and have established robust systems of coordination, communication, and solidarity that did not exist prior to the 2019-2020 academic year. And there's a photo of a big protest outside of a building. Conclusion! The unavoidable conclusion of our analysis is that when we fight, we win, but how, where, and when we fight is of great significance in ways that are not straightforwardly predictable or easy to calculate by measures like supermajority or according to ideological attachments to abstract values like democracy. The primary lesson to draw from the Kola struggle is this. Gains can be made by committed rank-and-file workers who find choke points within the university at which to disrupt its operations. And perhaps more importantly, the actions of organized rank-and-file ripple and magnify across the manifold arms of the university in surprising and potentially energizing ways. The sudden contract wins of AFSCME and the K7 workers at Santa Cruz are only two examples. These wins only underscore that it is the most precarious workers who must engage in the most tightly organized and militant labor actions. When they do so, they can win. These lessons are in some senses counter to our expectations and in others not. Fully grasping their nuance in each of our particular conditions will be the key to our future success. Taking note of the conditions and counterintingencies Oh, excuse me, contingencies, like to make up words there, I guess, and contingencies outlined above while we organize with other rank-and-file workers will be crucial, recognizing them at play in our conversations and with our comrades and coworkers in our department meetings and division, divisional town halls, or in our casual discussions of the impacts of the pandemic, the fires, the housing market, or the national and global political unrest on our work and our lives— is of incalculable importance to the work of building our power. When we fought last year, we won, but there is so much more to win, and we must take every lesson we have as an opportunity to advance our struggle this year. And for, for further reading, reading, please see Recording the Complexity of Struggle, an interview with the COLA Ag- Agitation Committee, and We Cannot Wait, a critical assessment of the UC Berkeley COLA movement, and they provide links there as well. We'll be sharing this article on our page at weeklyrev.org wow i learned quite a bit from reading this article so um, sending lots of love and support to all the folks who have protested and organized to make this happen and continue fighting for people getting what they need going to move on to another band next and this band is called they're called the cia so mm, however uh i think that, that might be pretty good so let's hear a few songs and we'll be back in a bit Thank you.
1: Like they have, we are preparing to replace all of those things so people don't have to sleep in the cold. And, like, people are pe- uh, what the last number I saw is 119 people in Seattle have died this year from sleeping outside. So, Risk I'm to not gonna let anyone sleep outside even for one night without a time or a blanket or a sleep bag if we can avoid it. We're gonna get on top of that. How do Several raids
0: during All right, so I'm uh, sharing a video here, or audio from a video from the Seattle protests uh, that was shared by. Inhumans of Late Capitalism, which is an account you can follow on Twitter, at Inhumans of Late One. And the video shows uh, the person speaking and they're standing in front of signs stop the sweeps, housing first, public safety equals housing for all. And then part of the other signs cut off in the video, but you can see it says 11,751. Um, I'm assuming it says homeless people in Seattle. 130 people have died. So just sharing that, and here in San Francisco, too, there's still the, the wealth disparity is still quite large and really want to ensure that folks get the housing. Everyone deserves housing. Shouldn't have to talk about it. It should just be like a basic, duh. However, considering this is the world we live in, it's important just to remind uh, one another that it doesn't have to be this way. All right, we're going to move on to another article and feels weird just to, like, shift so quickly, but everything is connected, of course. And this show is very much about people coming together to fight against capitalism, to fight against people, musicians of power, who don't care if we live or die. And there are so many ways that folks can show up. Um, particularly in the first article we shared today, talks about that a lot. The last couple songs we played, it's by a band called the CIA. I think I like their second song more than their first that we shared. And also on our webpage, weeklyrev.org, I provide links to playlists of the music. So... Perhaps you listen to the show. I, I don't, I mean, for a number of reasons. Maybe you're really into the music, and you're like, oh, cool, I want to listen to this as well. So we also share that. Maybe you're into the, the news, and you appreciate the music as a break. A lot of reasons, and hopefully, regardless of who you are and what you're into, you there's something here that's for you that you enjoy and or makes your day a bit brighter. Another article. I don't know why I did that. It's, uh, <laughs> I had a lot of coffee this morning. That's not, that's not why I did that. I think I would have done that regardless. Okay, this is from It's Going Down. It's Going Down is like an anarchist news source, and they share a lot of good information. So this is an article that came up on December 11th. So around this time last week anti-fascist resistance heats up against Stop the Steal rallies and faces new challenges. And I think it's really crucial just to find more independent sources, such as this, because corporate media doesn't seem to recognize that fascism is a threat and, or they'll say, they'll like try to both sides it and or take the side of the cops who actually assault people and uh, also just take the side of elected officials whose policies are quite violent. So, Really crucial just to have a better understanding of from folks who are actually um, on the ground and or in touch with folks who are on the ground to have an understanding of what's going on without uh, corporate and commercial pressures changing the narrative. So the photo here is a a large banner with a kind of an outline of Hitler and with a gun to his head blowing his brains out, and it says, follow your leader. And in front of this banner, there's many people wearing masks, and they've got shields. And again, you can find this at itsgoingdown.org, and we will share this article on our website. And it starts off with a, a Chumbawamba quote. And I've said this before on the show, that they're I know they're very much largely known for being a quote-unquote one-hit wonder. However, they're this like anarchist, anti-fascist band, and I think they deserve uh, more recognition. So there, there's a song that I've played before on the show called Day the Nazi Died. And also the just want to say that the cover image is from Unicorn Riot, which is another independent organization that folks can support should support uh please support follow their work as well and the quote from the chumbawamba song day the nazi died is they're taking over the boardrooms and they're fat and full of pride and i don't think fat shaming is really appropriate here we don't need to do that they're fucking nazis that's bad enough however i'm gonna continue i'm not gonna take this chumbawamba quote seriously i mean i am obviously because i've commented on it and they all came out of the woodwork on the day the nazi died so yes so here is this article. Last weekend major anti-fascist mobilizations took place across the so-called United States, the first to be called in the post-election period and in the face of an activated, angry and energized far-right. While the fuckface, excuse me, Trump administration's attempts to legally contest the election has so far resulted in failure, Trump has continued to rally his base around the conspiracy theory that the election was stolen while insinuating that he will launch a run for the White House in 2024. In response, a coalition including MAGA supporters, white nationalists, militia members, and Proud Boys have organized ongoing rallies outside of state capitals, governor mansions, and beyond. And they share a screenshot uh, from Corvallis Against Fascism. You can follow them on Twitter, at CV Against fash. And the tweet says, last night a POC-owned restaurant in Salem was vandalized by FASH. The person caught on security cameras bears striking resemblance to Eric Olkers, who has previously stalked and threatened people associated with the business. And they provide uh, the link to this tweet here. In several instances, far-right rallies in support of Trump over the past several weeks have ended in violence. In Washington, D.C., after the Millions MAGA March in mid-November, hundreds of drunken Proud Boys attacked Black Lives Matter and anti-fascist, Uh, counter protesters in black lives matter plaza stabbing several people and beating many more before uh many many more before then ripping down and destroying blm signs in sacramento california over the past few weeks hundreds of trump supporters have rallied every saturday along with members of the proud boys and other far-right gangs taking to the streets to engage in violence against counter protesters and members of the public in the street as police have largely stood by In Salem, Oregon, anger has also grown as police have facilitated continuous protests and rallies by violent far-right groups. Last weekend in Olympia, Washington, this dynamic came to a head as a far-right Trump supporter opened fire on counter-protesters injuring one person. This coddling and facilitation of violent far-right groups flies in the face of months of outright brutal counter-insurgency attacks by militarized police and the National Guard, and more importantly, a flood of heavy charges against protesters. What the wave of far-right rallies has shown once again is that when the far-right riots attacks people in the street, destroys property, shoots people dead, or runs them over with cars, the police do not deploy tear gas, send in the military, or set people up on trumped-up charges. The reason for this is simple. The state is using the far-right as an auxiliary force of extra-legal counterinsurgency. They provide a tweet from United Against Racism and Fascism NYC. You can follow them on Twitter at uarfnyc tonight a small group of anti-fascists gathered for a vigil of michael Reinold and the anti-fascist from oregon whose extrajudicial murder by feds was explicitly endorsed by trump and they show the photo has a uh, some candles and a banner that says vengeance for michael ryanol the anarchy the A in the circle long live anti-fascism and then there's a tweet from talia jane Follow on Twitter at it's uh, ITSA underscore Talia. Uh, NYPD response to a powerful vigil for Michael Reynol, an anti-fascist who was murdered by feds in an extraditional, extrajudicial assassination openly called for and endorsed by the president. Group dispersed safely before SRG rolled through. And there's a video here. Um, let's see, hear the audio here.
2: 20 seconds.
0: Cops on bicycles, giving bicycles a bad name. There's at least a dozen. Okay, so nothing to much else to share about that. But as the Stop the Steal rallies continue past the date in which electors will ratify their votes for Joe Biden, it becomes more likely that far right the far-right demonstrations will evolve into rallies against masking and COVID-19 lockdowns, as they have already done in cities like Salem, Oregon. For both the MAGA crowd and the far-right, this will allow them to continue to remain relevant while also presenting an affront to autonomous anti-capitalists as the far-right will appear to challenge, quote-unquote, the state in their opposition to lockdown measures. At a time when many are hurting from lack of work and wages, this position will seem enticing. In reality, both the neoliberal center and far right is in agreement on who should pay for the current crisis. The poor and working class who is being pushed back to work and school, told to sacrifice their lives upon the altar of the economy. The only difference is that the liberals would prefer if we did it from home. In the face of this, anti-fascists face an uphill battle. On one side is a highly militarized police force already activated and flush with resources in the wake of the rebellion, and on the other, an activated far-right furious over losing the election. Moreover, many liberals and progressives have largely checked out content, content to allow Biden to take the reins of power and return the country, quote-unquote, to normal in moving forward. Anti-fascists must continue to build growing coalitions and overall regional capacity— networks of information sharing and trust, and the ability to support continued struggle. This building must also be coupled with continued outreach and political education to our broader communities about why a post-Trump world doesn't signal the end of the fascist threat. Lastly, as anarchists and autonomists, we can't solely and only dedicate ourselves to countering the far right. Losing sight of building our larger movement and its infrastructure, doing so in this critical time would mean losing all of the gains we have made since 2016. And then there's a screen capture of a tweet from Unicorn Riot. You can follow them on Twitter at UR underscore Ninja. Since the election, election, armed pro-Trump and white supremacist groups, Proud Boys, etc., have been holding weekly hashtag Stop the Steal protests organized by hashtag HoldTheLineMN. Last Saturday, around 100 anti-fascists rallied after a counter-protester was assaulted the week before. And there's the in the photo, there's a large sign that says, Unite to Fight the Far Right. And the under underneath the text says, Twin Cities anti-fascists scuffle with Proud Boys and pro-Trumpers. On November 28th, 100, around 100 anti-fascists from various coalitions opposed Proud Boys and other far-right groups after... Okay, and then the article goes on, but you can find that link on this website. As, have men, as many have pointed out, the Biden administration will be more concerned about throwing a wet blanket on continuing class struggle and social conflict than the threat of real-life far-right violence. If Trump does in fact run in 2024 and continues to hold rallies alongside a growing autonomous far-right street movement, feeding off growing anger over the pandemic with or without support from the GOP, we can expect to see continued far-right activity and organizing. In short, if we fail to materialize both a powerful grassroots anti-fascist resistance and a revolutionary anti-capitalist force that engages poor and working-class people in a real way, then we risk ceding ground to an insurgent fascist force both on the streets and within society at large. With all that in mind, here's our roundup of recent anti-fascist actions. Okay, I'm going to take another break. I'm going to get some water. And uh, let's, here's another band that was recommended let's see here they're not um uh, to the find their band camp here they're called bb and the blips that's a cute name and the let's see let's start off here play some of their music BB and the Blips, and they have a band camp. We'll share a link over on our website. Did want to share a place. uh, There's a lot of places that folks can contribute. One place is the National Lawyers Guild, San Francisco. A brief description here. We'll provide a link also on the website. National Lawyers Guild, San Francisco Bay Area chapter, depends heavily on grassroots fundraising to support our work. Any donation, big or small, will help us continue to support and defend organizers, activists, and social movements here in the Bay Area. If you would like to make a donation, please complete the form. We'll share the form, and um, yeah. And going back to, they sent out an email today that has more information, on particularly one of the um, one reason to support them. There's plenty though, and they have a uh, six months of the NLGSF Santa Rita Jail Hotline, the Santa Rita Jail SRJ Hotline, which is five one zero. is a free resource for prisoners in the Alameda County Santa Rita Jail and their families to report their concerns about COVID-19 jail conditions and to obtain information about their rights. The hotline consists of attorney, legal worker, and community member volunteers who answer calls, correspond with, and advocate for prisoners. The hotline operates daily from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. The NLGSF Santa Rita Jail hotline has now operated for six months, providing a free resource to prisoners in the Alameda County, Santa Rita Jail from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. daily. The SRJ hotline would not have been possible without the support of members, hotline volunteers, community partners, and the hotline legal team who contributed their extensive experience and legal license to create a confidential resource for prisoners. Uh, Workers have now logged over 500 intakes since March and written hundreds of letters to prisoners. Hotline workers have advocated directly to the jail, connected prisoners with community resources, and facilitated communication between prisoners and their attorneys with no retaliation against courageous whistleblowers who have spoken out about conditions. And so here's what your donation to the NLG will support in 2021. Compensate law student interns to conduct research and submit public records and requests. Provide postage to mail information, complaint forms, and legal mail to SRJ prisoners cover the cost of expensive hotline calls and video visits with SRJ prisoners. And they also provide um, info if you would like to become a hotline worker and or advocate to those incarcerated at Santa Arena Jail. You can email uh, Hotline at nlgsf.org. And it says, please donate to support our SRJ hotline that provides critical connections, advocacy, um, litigation support and data, and public exposure so that we don't leave those uh, most vulnerable to state repression and oppression alone. So again, we'll also share this info um, on our website, weeklyrep.org. Okay, going to finish up here with the rest of the article from It's Going Down, and this is a roundup of recent anti-fascist actions, and again, this was published a week ago, so I'd imagine by the time you're listening to this, if you're listening live or, again, in the future, maybe in the past, um, I'm sure there have been more by then. Okay, so from Olympia, Washington, uh, there's a tweet from, looks like, Alyssa Azar at Revolution Daddy, and Revolution spelled with a three instead of the e, Black Lives Matter, and there's uh, photos from protests at the Washington State Capitol. There's a tweet from Youth Liberation Front Seattle Division at Seattle YLF. Comrades appear to have separated from the crowd of chuds. And begun marching. We'll update if anything significant happens. So um, photo here of folks marching with a banner that says, no justice, no peace, no fascist, no police. BLM. Next, Independent Media Portland. Individual who fired his gun earlier in the day can be seen at the 23-second mark. So this is uh, perhaps easier for folks to uh, see just the links. So, oh, wow. What's this? This is a uh, – Um, From Sacramento, there is some Trump signs and Trump banners on fire. Pretty beautiful. Um, And it's a great report back from AntifaSAC, underscore. And I'll do my best to describe these. Uh, AntifaSAC. For the last four weeks, MAGA bigots and members of the neo-fascist Proud Boys have terrorized our city. Today on week five, a powerful anti-fascist march took the streets around the Capitol and asserted their opposition. No MAGA vehicle was safe. So there's photos of... Four vehicles with some flat tires. Chad Loder reports from Sacramento. Um, More Sacramento. Um, St. Paul, Minnesota from Unicorn Riot. Today's anti-fascist response to the back of the blue slash stop the seal. Proud Boys gathering at Minnesota's uh, governor's residence was larger than last week. Uh, Stay tuned for more media from today. You You can find some more information at uh, Unicorn Riot, MN Uprising, Abolitionists on the March in St. Paul. Let's see if we can hear some. Audio. What's the noise? What's the noise? What's the noise?
2: What's
3: the noise?
0: Aw, oh, that's lovely. Next up, NYC Antifa. Uh, another shield wall in the Twin Cities as people defend their communities from Proud Boys on the far right. So, let's see if we can hear any Audio from this clip as well. (laughs) I believe this is the uh, the same clip as before. And uh, then there's MN United Against Fascism uh, at MN United AF. When you and your crew are tight and organized and ready to confront the far right, rumor is a few Proud Boys pissed themselves when they saw our shield wall. And, oh, they've got some really cool shields up. One that 1312 ACAB, Anarchy Sign, Fight Back, ACAB, etc. Next up, New York City. In opposition to the Metropolitan Republican Club's holiday, super spreader soiree happening later today. Anonymous activist paid a visit to the club. Um... Body bags, graffiti reading, you're canceled, and a cab, and signs, and yeah. So we'll share a link to this website. Okay, it's one forty. Usually wrap up the show around one fifty. So let's just play some more music. Yeah, yes. Okay, I think we well got to most of what we wanted to get to today. Let me see if there's other um, articles we can share. New Zealand has gone a month without. Uh, looks like coronavirus cases. I'll just click on the link here to provide the correct title. Yes. New Zealand goes a month without community transmission of COVID-19. So good for them. That's good. That sounded really snarky, but honestly, that's great. And more power to the places that uh, take their health seriously. San Francisco has ordered a 10-day quarantine for anyone traveling from outside the Bay Area. Oh, Oh, yeah. This is what I wanted to get to, too. All right. Uh, from Germany. this is from dw.com not dw from the arthur cartoon i didn't really watch the cartoon but i do know folks talk about dw so that's again trying to add some levity into this this is an article about neo-nazi attacking people so um gotta talk about arthur to you know balance it out a bit all right so neo-nazi attack survivors create tool to track racist extremists so that's cool Survivors of Germany's HAL synagogue attack are now tracking white supremacist extremists worldwide. Terrorists use online platforms like Twitch, which police are failing to monitor, they say. Shocking. Why would police not arrest themselves? Okay. And there's a sign. There's a photo of a person with a sign that says, make Nazis Afraid again. And the caption, survivors of neo-Nazi attacks are stepping up to fight against extremism. On August 3rd, 2019, a right-wing extremist shot dead 23 people at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, Oh goodness! I am going to. Um, oof! I'm going to post this article. I'm sure there's some very um, good information in it, but I think uh, as we're approaching the end of this, for my mental health, I'm going to post a link to it and uh, play this out with some music. And yeah, so I'd say let's do some more BB and the Blips, and then finish up with some Toots and the Maytals. And thanks so much for tuning in. Wow, this there was a lot. That's a lot. So thanks for tuning in. Appreciate y'all listening. Again, if you're able to donate anywhere from a dollar a month and up on our Patreon, it would be greatly appreciated. Weeklyrev.org for more info. And hope everyone has a safe week and be kind to each other, help out one another if you're able. And we'll be back next week. The song's called Lucky Country. <laughs>
3: to be tough and this is a warning you got to be smart living in this time it's not so easy to carry on so if you are my friend treat me like a friend a friend in need and a friend indeed but just in case you never know
4: Women through a sea of podcasts, are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship
2: and the world around you, at buckskinrevolution.com.
4: Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants Oh, shoot! From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples so you're saying i could tell my jokes every monday from six to eight that's what i'm saying it's the joke workshop mondays six to eight pm at the mutant radius
2: hey you poetry reader this is bjork's sister mjork it's okay
4: San Francisco, what are you doing this week? Come join Mutiny Radio Presents for four different comedy shows supporting local businesses
2: in the Mission District and beyond. On Sunday, join us in the Tenderloin.